หโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสนะโมทัสสะบาวาโทอาระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสนะโมทัสสะบาวาโทอาระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะอาปารุธาเดชะงามทัสทาวราเยสุรวันทาบมุนชันทุสัทังเออ this is the what they call a pavarana Day and making, spending the three month Vasa retreat, traditional Vasa retreat that was established by the Buddha 2,500 years ago, following the monsoon uh, season in India. So the monsoon is over now. And the uh, and then the, the idea of living together as community, the sangha, then it makes itself admonishable. So because of pride and conceit and uh, our own egos and that, we you know we we rub up against each other and uh, irritate each other and. Cause each other all kinds of suffering, intentionally or unintentionally, and uh, then asking for forgiveness and making ourselves admonishable is a kind of noble practice of learning how to live in community. <coughs> Because inevitably, just our presence is going to be irritating in some way or another. Because that's the, the nature of this realm. This is an irritating realm. <coughs> and sometimes we intentionally, you know, irritate somebody, and sometimes we, they get irritated without any intention. But the idea is to, to you know, make oneself open to admonishment, and to uh, to just seek that kind of. Openness and humbleness that comes, learning to take admonishment, is a good practice. Because uh, from the level of the personality, you know, say my personality doesn't like to be admonished. I don't like to be criticized, and. Uh, I don't like to be uh, blamed for things, uh, people to uh, uh, disparage me in any way, and uh, maybe I'm unique in this flaw. <laughs> But uh, the uh, you know that personality is uh, is something that is based on fear and ignorance. So, as a personality, then you know I can easily be offended, upset, and irritated by if things aren't going my way. Up, if I don't get what I want, uh, people don't do what I think they should do, or they they you know don't go along with what I want them to, then. Uh, Then I can feel offended, upset, and, uh, rejected, and all kinds of emotions uh, can arise. So, in trying to get a humble personality, then when you know you can be a phony and kind of like Uriah Heap type of of uh, uh, pride in being humble, or. <laughs> Or humility. What is what is humility really? Uh, if it's a virtue, then it's not 
uh, an act one's putting on and trying to pretend to be humble but to really listen, open to the experience in the present moment. Uh, whether we like it or don't like it's not the point. Or whether we agree, disagree, or, you know, uh, feel that the person who's admonished me is right or wrong. Because that's how uh, the, my personality might react. But the, uh, what I recommend is the awareness and the listening uh, to the silence being in the still point and then receiving <coughs> admonishment or criticism or uh, whatever uh, just as a practice. And, to th and that, of course, includes being aware of one's own reaction. Like if I feel I'm being criticized unfairly, somebody's criticizing me and there's no tr truth in it, it's just, you know, a problem that they have, then I can feel quite indignant. Um, how dare you accuse me of something like that? I've never even, you know, and then I get into, I, get, I can feel a sense of, righteous indignation. Or sometimes uh, the admonishment is true, but one doesn't want to admit it. You know, one doesn't like, and one thinks somebody's on a power trip or on some kind of mission, and then we, we say, I'm not going to take admonishment from you, you can't tell me what to do. And then I get into that kind of uh, resistance uh, as a person. So I've made it a practice to, to listen and to, uh, and from that still point to, to really bring into, you know, allow the feelings of both the, the criticisms or admonishment uh, that is given to me and my reaction to it because in that point of stillness it, it receives both at the same time. The still point is as no, it's multidimensional. You know, where the, the ego is linear. You know, so it, it, it's very limited and reactive and, and conditioned. <coughs> so one, one way of looking into the still point without any dimension, no dimension to it. And this is why it's an impossible concept you know, to try to conceive the still point or to uh, try to uh, create an image of it or find it as an object uh, is uh, when you say the, a point of no dimension or the point that includes everything. I mean, that there's a point that excludes everything like samatha practice tends to focus on an object, one object, and ex by excluding everything else, or the point that includes, because a point, you know, does it have a, do we need to think of it only as a, as, as something that excludes, or can the point include everything? And so these are, these are just ways of reflecting on language, ways of, of get, helping to point or recognize awareness as reality. Uh, as soon as you try to conceive it, then it, that's not it. You know, you try to, you hold on to a view about it or concept. That concept itself is not it. So it's relinquishing, letting go of concept. Though it's non-attachment, awareness, non-conceptual, but conscious, present here and now.
So during this retreat, the week, the formal retreat of the past week, you know, the special conditions of kind of formal boundaries, designated times, uh, community in retreat mode, and all that. These are special conditions uh, that we've agreed to. That that um, so that. We don't have to make all kinds of decisions or, or things. We, we can focus our attention just on the breath and the posture and the silence. And uh, the structure is given to us. And so that makes it, you know, I find that makes it easy. Because when there's options available, then of course the mind always, you know, the, it's easy to think of things one would rather do. Or, you know, find something else to do than that. But in the, the point of, uh, say, formal retreat is, is to agree to, to live within the boundaries uh, that have been designated in order to simplify. So the options are more limited and, um, and we have, and that makes, makes it much more Simple and easy for us. Or we feel resistance to it. Don't want to be bothered doing it. Uh, we, those are the kind of mental states we can observe. You know, the, the way one resists or, uh, you know, reacts or rebels. I mean, these are very important emotions too, to recognize. In any kind of limitation placed on our behavior on our desires, isn't it? If there's something blocking or frustrating, or uh, then we feel we we feel rebellious. At least I do, resistant, uh, because uh, the, there's what I want to do, and then the, the 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 boundary that is imposed on me uh, through the through the form or the structure that I'm in. So that very tension, you know, of me, my desire to get what I want and the frustration of, of not being able to get it uh, because I'm prevented by the form or the structure, that's a tension that we can bring attention to, alertness to. And that's what we want to see. And when the first uh, year, couple of years uh, of my monastic life with Ajahn Chah, you know, living under strict Vinaya, it was, it was a lot of tension because uh, there was the, 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 they were very strict and they had a very definite way of doing everything. <coughs> and uh, I felt and brought up a lot of feelings of rebellion and resistance. Uh, just, you know, just and stubbornness and pride and conceit. I could get very critical. Though they, you know, these monks are just, you know, they're just blind followers of rules. And I'd get into my on my high horse about I'm not like that. You know, I'm my own man, and I and I'd start listening to my own resistance and sense of. Uh, the way I would criticize or resist the, the restraint. And this, uh, of course, I learned a lot from that about, you know, the suffering, the cause of suffering. Because attaching to my own desires and my own views, uh, and when I couldn't get my own way or do what I wanted, the, the rebelliousness, the aversion, uh, the anger, frustration, and then like a little child, really, when when he can't get what he what he wants, he throws a tantrum. <coughs> and even though I seldom would throw tantrums in any kind of obvious way, inwardly I could be having a tantrum. But 
But then the uh, emphasis of Lumpur Chow's teaching was always uh, on awareness. They say, do jit. Look at your heart, look at your mind. And, uh, and so this, you know, in the, uh, even though I was learning the Thai language at the time, I could understand that much. <laughs> it, was, it became obvious. Uh, what that was without any great, you know, great facility with the Thai language, I picked that up quite uh, quickly, and that was quite an important insight for me to to watch, to observe the emotional reactions I had to the to the to the life I was living, because uh, they as a Personality, I was, my personality, you know, kind of developed on the west coast of the United States, which is very different, uh, you know, middle class society of uh, where the ideas of, of independence, expressing yourself, uh, anti-authoritarianism, you know, you're, you're all against authority, and uh, you know, being your own person and getting your way were the kind of um, bon mots of the of my generation. So this was uh, this was going again going into the the Thai forest tradition, <laughs> which <laughs> all conformity, kind of dreaded conformity in every possible way in behavior. And in uh, you know just in appearance, but then the conformity they, that I experienced in the military when I was in the navy was was a conformity uh, for based on to to diminish the the sense of independent personality to be a unit, a fighting unit, a battalion or a company of men who were going to perform some kind of action, warlike action, or in that, in, in order to, uh, you know, to protect the country or fight off the enemy. So that was one style, is military conformity, which is also based on fear, in, uh, because it's a reward and punishment type uh, situation. I remember in the boot camp in the Navy, they, they would, uh, you know, you'd get punished if you didn't conform, if you didn't obey, if you didn't, uh, you know, if you made a mistake or you weren't in step or you didn't wash your, your clothes well enough or whatever, then you were humiliated, called all kinds of, of uh, horrible names. You say, uh, idiot, and these were the more mild type of name. <laughs> I've answered the idiot, you know. He says, idiot, and I say, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and other, other words that I wouldn't possibly think of using in this. But then uh, the desire for conformity, to be one of the group, to fit in, to, you know, was very strong also. And to, to, uh, to be part of that group and to uh, not to stand out as the oddball or the, the misfit. So there's, you know, uh, longing for conformity, to be part of a group, not to be one who you know, is going in the wrong direction, not to be persecuted and made fun of or humiliated by being a really excellent conformist. So the, the ego is, is built on, you know, how well I can conform in order to get the approval of the group and the, and the uh, company commander and all the rest. And then idiosyncrasy, individuality, eccentricity uh, were definitely persecuted in the military. You definitely made your life much more difficult by being eccentric. 
in the monastic life, you know, we would think, what, are, what is the, uh, the conformity here is for what? Is it reward and punishment? You know, are we rewarded for being good monks and nuns and punished for being bad ones? Or, uh, you know, to, to fit into the group or to... I mean, we, we have all these, these tendencies because that's part of our cultural conditioning, isn't it? At least, you know, speaking for myself, uh, you know, coming from a reward and punishment culture, then it was easy to to regard monastic life in that way as reward and punishment, and uh, and not a fear of rejection, of being made fun of, or being the the despised one, the uh, the scapegoat, the outcast. So one could, uh, you know, one could live the monastic life solely to fit in to it, or to, you know, to, uh, you know, gain the acceptance and the, and the that that comes through being good and obeying. But then we also begin to be aware of the resentment that builds up just through through uh, the ego, the sense of myself being limited to my ego and wanting to to be rewarded in fear of punishment, there's also a tremendous uh, resentment that, that accumulates if one is not conscious or aware of what's happening inside oneself. So the, the emphasis is on do jit. Look at, observe, be the witness to. So uh, one, d- you know, I, I began to look at monastic life not in terms of conformity, out of fear, but out of uh, uh, as a skillful means for awareness. So this was Lung Po Cha's, uh, of course, emphasis was. Uh, uh, it took me quite a while to really appreciate it fully, but. Because the conditioning of the other way, the the ego that wanted to fit in and be rewarded for being good, and the fear of being rejected, condemned for not being a good monk. Now that which is aware of this, you know, the, the you know to recognize what the the conformity is. Is not for the ego, you know. It's not. It's not a um, there for a, as an end in itself, but as a simplification. You know, in a communal communal life, the uh, the agreements, the moral agreements, such as the eight precepts, the ten precepts, the vinaya, and so forth. These are. Agreements about behavior and speech <coughs> that we that are part of a tradition. So, when asking to enter the sangha, then that point is that we we're willing to agree to these uh, these these uh, uh, this style, this way, this lifestyle. And then the then the um, awareness of what results from that agreement. So the only way I've ever really the only way out of the trap of either blindly following or resisting and rebelling is through awareness, because this awareness is the point with no dimension, the still point, the sound of silence. In meditation, you know, you begin to see, observe your, your, you know, like as you're more aware of the ego as a conditioning, uh, rather than as a as a self, as reality. You know, it becomes more like like fish in a tank, things that swim around and move around in the in the in consciousness, but. One is no longer just 
identifying with the various fish or or things in the fish tank, but one is the the whole thing itself. The consciousness then, as we you know, as we begin to recognize through a, with awareness, then consciousness is is what connects us all, isn't it? That's that's our oneness. Consciousness is one, and then uh, the the conditions that arise in consciousness are uh, infinitely variable and dependent on other conditions. You know, what kind of conditions go on in my consciousness depend on other conditions, such as the weather, the weather, or whether I'm feeling healthy or sickly, or whether things are going the way I want or not going the way I want, or uh, I'm being adulated and giving titles and and praise, or I'm being condemned and humiliated and rejected, or uh, you know the winds of fate uh, that affect uh, one's life are unpredictable, and you can't you can't just spend your time trying to control uh, the the conditioned realm because it's it's a hopeless task. So the the aim then is not give up control, let go of the conditioning to be in that infinite consciousness, awareness, where the conditions are seen as Dhamma rather than uh, loved or hated or uh, attached to or rejected or whatever. So it's like like now I'm in in the process of Bart is writing helping me to write my um, biography. He's come all the way from California. So I have to regurgitate my past and it's <laughs> it's uh and it's really not not something I really like doing actually <laughs> because uh just having to remember, you know, all the things that have happened to me in in my life. Seventy years is a long time, a lot of memories. Then uh, also the uh, uh, somebody, m- a friend, when I was in the Peace Corps 40 years ago, sent me some photos of me when I was in the Peace Corps as a layperson and. When I first looked at the photo, who's that? Why did he send me that picture? And I realized that's a picture of me. <laughs> I couldn't recognize myself 40 years ago, and it, but it did it did seem very strange, to uh, because that was a definite kind of uh, starting life anew, becoming a monk, from being a layman. Uh, and the layman, I could no longer recognize in in the photo. And the um, <coughs> and then the monastic life, which has been um, thirty eight, thirty nine years, is uh, doesn't seem very long actually. You know, and when I look back, even though. Forty years ago sounds like a long time, and to you, some of you aren't even forty yet. And you know, so you, you know, forty years does seem like a long time, but actually, looking backward, it doesn't at all. Seems an incredibly short time uh, since uh, that I became a monk, uh, and it it doesn't seem like I've been a monk all that long and yet I've been a monk most of my life now. More than I've ever been a lay person. So the the layman's life was for me was a life of you know really of the ego. That my ego was was I didn't know any other way of uh, relating. So there was, you know, the age of 30 or so, it was like, 
feeling this sense of despair because the ego was all was too limited, and I could feel that limitation, the the kind of narrowness of of my personality and its limitation, and and intuitively there's kind of an inner sense or something within me, an intuitive sense knew there was something more than that or something else but but in terms of of how I uh, existed it was always in terms of the ego everything was interpreted from my personal views and opinions the sense of me and mine from self-consciousness from fear from desire from habit and so I found you know very like very unpleasant at the age of 30 even though I was in a very pleasant situation life couldn't have been better for me at the age of 30 everything around me uh, everything you know in terms of uh, lifestyle and conditions and friends and all that profession all that with were f very good. You know, there wasn't anything wrong on that level. But the personality was endlessly create, produce conflict and tension and fear and anxiety and worry uh, when, when it wasn't necessary, but just, just the force of habit, the momentum of, hab of the habits of 30 years uh, living under the uh, reward punishment culture. So the the intuition, of course, is what what uh, you know attracted me to the Buddhist teaching. My first kind of awakened experience with Buddhism was when I was only about twenty, twenty one. Uh, something in me just well I read read something on Zen Buddhism and and it was an intuitive understanding I couldn't have rationally explained what had happened you know if you wanted me to describe Zen Buddhism and and define it and explain it intellectually I wouldn't have I would have been totally tongue-tied because it was an intuition a sense of that and intuition then is multi-dimensional. It's not an intellectual function. The intellect can can operate in with the intuition, but if one is attached to intellectual uh, conditions, then the the intuitive function is not is is no longer uh, oh you know one is no longer uh, capable of intuition. One is merely caught in defining analyzing, criticizing. <coughs> so I read, you know, it's interesting to read people, people who are not Buddhist in this country or in the, in, uh, the States and whatnot, their, their attempts to define and understand Buddhism on the intellectual side are rather comical. Because uh, it is, um, you know, it doesn't, it, even though it has a strong intellectual basis, yet it's the intellect isn't the main thing. It's not a, a kind of philosophy that one subscribes to and takes sides with, but it is the imminent imminence of awareness, which is uh, something that is so simple and so obvious that, that we don't notice, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's overlooked all the time. So we want to know what is the, what is the essence of Buddhism? What is the purpose? What is the meaning? What is the ultimate goal? What is nirvana? Is nirvana heaven or hell? Or is it a, is it extinction? Or is it you know, are Buddhists, are we just practicing in order to extinguish ourselves? Is it annihilation? Uh, and uh, on the intellect, you know, intellectual level, it, 
we, we go around in circles trying to figure out whether you know, the eternal intellect or the, or the uh, consciousness or infinity or the deathless as some kind of metaphysical concept. Uh, in attempts to intellectualize or form concepts about that which is beyond concepts, of course, is futile. So that's where uh, the Buddha Dhamma isn't a defining structure, but a structure for pointing at, or if we use it properly, then it, it's, uh, it's used for awareness, not for uh, identification, not for uh, creating more thought around it or or getting caught up in, in comparing it with something else. The, the awareness then is, is, is the only possibility, the only way that we can realize deathless, the deathless. Now, just on an intellectual level, if you, if you, uh, if you, you know, if you look at, if you contemplate the nature of all phenomena as a nietzsche, as impermanent, and so then the, you, you know, this reflection on impermanence is one of the uh, important reflections in Buddhist meditation, so that we we break down any hope of finding something, a thing, or something that is permanent. Because every thought is impermanent, every emotion, every sensory experience, its very nature is changing, energetic change, movement. Then nothing's static. And what arises ceases, what begins ends. Time itself is that way, isn't it? Time is, is all about beginning and ending. When we believe in time as reality, where, you know, I was born 1934. This is 2004. So I began in 1934, and I'm at this. Seventy years later, and who knows when it'll all end. I'll drop dead, and so that is—that's uh, the illusion of time. I am this body that was born. The you know the this is the the past and the future. I will die, but in the present, and that's that's where experience always is, isn't it? The only Experience is always here and now. We can fantasize experiences about tomorrow or remember uh, things of the past, but that's always happening now. Memory is a condition arising, ceasing. Fantasy, projection in the future are thoughts that arise and cease in the present. So there's nothing left. You completely give up in trying to find something or somebody or anything at all that you can hold to and believe in and grasp hold of. <coughs> so that seems almost like annihilation because it forces us to, to let go of everything, everything that we hold on to. It's taking, you know, taking the rug from under... Uh, from under our feet all the time. Every time we think we're stabilized and then the, the carpet is pulled from underneath and we're falling all over again. There's nothing to hold to, nothing to grasp. So that throws us into free fall, into awareness. So contemplate that, you know, just that that uh, that you know, the here and now, Pachubana Dhamma. That's all there is and ever will be. Experience is now. Breathing is now. Thinking is now. Feeling is now. 
tomorrow is is a concept now. 1934 is a concept that arises and ceases now. Greed, uh, lust, or desire arises and ceases in the present. In the, or the hatred, anger, resentment, fear, jealousy. The, all these emotional states we experience when you know they there when we experience them there it's always now we might think yesterday i was angry but that's a memory that arises now so that's in meditation and the, the establishment of awareness always on what is happening right now the breathing now the posture now, the feeling now, the mood now. Not, you know, it's not about practicing something now in order to get something in the future. And how many of us have, you know, tried to practice now to get some result in the future? You know, there's a, so much emphasis on getting samadhi, the way we interpret scripture in our Western mind, isn't it? It's He's always they've got to get the, the the samadhi, the jhanas, in order to do the vipassana. This is a whole time sequence, isn't it, of concepts here and now. So as long as we operate out of ignorance, out of avicca, then of course the result is going to be dukkha. Because even if we get what we want. You know, even when I get what I want, there's something still missing. You know, I, I do get the samadhi. But then, whatever I get, I lose. And I can't keep it. I might be able to, through controlling situations and through concentration practice, be able to get some level of uh, concentration that I've that I like, but I'm also, you know, as soon as the conditions are gone, then it's, it's gone, and then there's a sense of loss. So, the Buddha, uh, you know, pointed to the transcendent awareness where gain and loss can be recognized in terms of that which is happening now. Gain is good, loss is good. You know, you, it's not a matter of preference anymore, but of, of being the awareness rather than somebody who's trying to hold on to something good and then feeling despair when you lose it. So, it's a, you know, like... Thought itself is is a is linear. It's dualistic. It's separative. So when we're trying to find nibbana through analysis, through thought, through through conceiving it as some goal that I'd like to achieve, we're actually making it impossible because we're actually trying to get something we've already created, we've already conceived of. And, uh, and so, we, we're, you know, we're never going to be satisfied with what we find. It's going to be disappointment. <coughs> so, the, the point of this is, is, is letting go. And to let go of, not, you know, not, I'm not anti-intellectual, but putting the intellect in a context of what it can be used for, getting to know its limitation, and no longer depending on intellectual analysis or concept, view or opinion or doctrine or dogma or whatever, uh, 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 through grasping. But the, the teachings of the Buddha are actually you know, the encouragement to let go, wake up, alertness, attentiveness in the present, 
to see, to recognize Nibbana here and now. This point without dimension, the point that includes infinity, that includes everything. Just like the space in this room, in this temple, isn't it? Being the space rather than this person sitting up here. The space has room. Being a person, I've always got to keep, you know, keep, you know, protect my space. I used to hear that a lot in this community. That this is my space. You're getting into my space. And kind of like, you know, <laughs> I've got to protect myself and this is my space. Don't, 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 don't enter my space. And this uh, sense of even the space around me is mine. It's me. I own it. But in, uh, in, you know, in reflection, space doesn't belong to anybody. You know, I can claim it and say, I own this space, but that's, that's uh, coming from the uh, delusion of a self. Or can we really own anything? Is anything mine at all? So the me and mine then is a creation. I can create myself. I can create myself as a person. When I create myself as a person, it is it is through memory, through habit. It's not a real live entity. It's a reaction. I mean, it was, you know, as you get older, you begin to get tired of yourself. You know, you get bored with yourself. Well, I don't remember feeling bored with myself as a child because I was learning, the ego was developing. But by age 30, I was absolutely bored with my personality. So it was, you know, just because it would say the same things over and over. And it would just, it's just a set of reactions and self-consciousness and all kinds of, of fears and resistances to experience. And so being bored with myself, you know, was trying to make myself more interesting, you know, self-improvement courses, trying to make myself more charming or more appealing or more open or more, you know, understanding or more compassionate as a person didn't work because the personality was so habitual that it, it didn't allow much expansion on that level. And even if it did, it didn't, it still was insufficient. It still wasn't uh, satisfying in any way. So this leads toward meditation. And that's what led me to, into this life, the meditative, because I, I thought, this, you know, I recognized that this was probably the way out of the trap, the f liberation. And the liberation then, from, you know, I found in monastic life wasn't through being able to just just do what I want and, 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 and assert myself as a person, but in the liberation of the heart itself, the freedom from uh, ignorance, conceit, uh, fear, desire. Because in the point of no dimension, everything ceases, arises, ceases. That point of no dimension, that's, that's where you can rest. That's where you can, that's the true nature, that's the Dhamma. And so then the rest is no longer a problem. It's just the karma of one's life. You know, what remains on the personal level, emotional habits, physical, uh, the physical body itself, it has its karmic span, it gets old, and the personality still operates, but it's no longer uh, believed in, 
held to, you're no longer bound and limited by personality or to emotional habit. Because the freedom is the deathless rather than the death bound. So I offer this as a reflection. And uh, this is the 25th anniversary of uh, birthday of Chan Sister Chan uh, Ajahn Chandasiri and Ajahn Sundra. So a very nice uh, thing of uh, these two nuns. We've shared our lives uh, for 25 years in the Sangha. Uh, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. <laughs> My, there is a tremendous kind of uh, gratitude and respect, I think, uh, for living this life. And uh, I just want you to know that, that uh, I really appreciate your, your efforts and your commitment. <coughs>